This is the MyHeart.net podcast. This show is produced by Dr. Philip Johnson in conjunction with VitalEngine.com. Please welcome your host, Dr. Elaine Bouchard, a cardiology specialist of Birmingham, Alabama, at St. Vincent's Medical Center, part of Ascension. Well, welcome to our podcast on the cardiac CT from prognosis to diagnosis. And with me today, uh, I have Dr. Satinder Singh, who is Professor of Radiology and Medicine in the Division of Cardiovascular Disease. He's actually Chief of the Cardiopulmonary Radiology and Director of the Cardiac CT at the University of Alabama in Birmingham. So, Dr. Singh, welcome to my heart.net podcast. Thank you, thank you, Dr. Bouchard. Thank you for taking the time to do this with us. We know that non-invasive cardiac imaging has evolved significantly over the last several decades. Advances in technology have the, and the development of newer CT system with improved um, spatial and temporal resolution, shorter imaging time with less radiation, and with ECG gating allows for the imaging of the beating heart. Cardiac CT is the fastest growing imaging modality in the field of cardiovascular disease from diagnosis to prognosis and how cardiac CT uh, with, cardio, with calcium score and CT angiography can help us taking care of our patients. And this is primarily what we're gonna to discuss today. Recently, the cardiac CT calcium score was integrated in the new guidelines for primary prevention of cardiovascular disease in asymptomatic patients with mild to moderate risk of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. So Dr. Singh, if you could tell us a little bit more about this, um, what is exactly the calcium score? How is it calculated? How do we actually, uh, how is it done? How do we obtain you know, those images with our patient? Yes, yeah, sure. So the calcium score is done with a CAT scan or computed tomography, which is commonly used for several CTs of the head, body, chest, etc. It's the same machine. Uh, we do not give any intravenous contrast. Uh, most of the studies are usually EKG gated so that we can reduce the motion-related artifacts. Uh, but there are newer techniques now where we can use, especially with the dual source scanner, a very high pitch uh, protocol. That means the table moved so fast that we can just image without gating the study also. Uh, there is no special preparation for the patient is required. They just make an appointment and show up at the time. Uh, once the patient is on the table, the technologist will hook up the EKG leads and give them instructions to hold a one breath hold during the scanning. And it only take one breath hold to scan the entire heart, which is usually less than six seconds or so. The total CT room time is maybe five to 10 minutes from start to finish, but actual image acquisition is less than six seconds. And then after those images are then sent to a special software, and actually many vendors have the software now, uh, which then determine the presence of calcification based on a CT threshold value of 130 Hansfield units. Anything above that value is considered uh, calcification. Uh, and one need to be very careful that if the stent is present, one should not include the stent in, in that uh, calcification score. And then from there, you get the Agaston score, its volume and density features. Uh, the results are usually available within an hour or so, at least at our facility. Uh, and depending upon the insurer, you know, some third party pair uh, do pay for this, otherwise people might have to pay on their own. And the cost is not, uh, is very minimal, around $100 or so, usually. But what does the calcium score tell us, uh, Dr. Singh? Yes, so the calcium score, uh, basically it, it represents presence of coronary atherosclerosis. It is a highly specific feature. If you see calcium in the coronary artery, that means the patient has coronary atherosclerosis. And there is a very consistent and reproducible evidence seen from multiple studies 
that there is a strong association between the calcium coronary artery calcium score and major cardiovascular outcomes, especially in asymptomatic individuals. Uh, it has been shown to have added uh, value to the conventional clinical risk assessment, such as Framingham risk scoring, which we use in this country, using age, sex, hypertension, uh, presence of diabetes, uh, hyperlipidemia, and smoking. And therefore, it can serve as a guide, uh, especially for initiating or deferring uh, preventative therapies, especially statin use uh, in, in a particular patient. Uh, there is some data also that it presence of coronary artery calcification may be associated with higher risk for heart failure as well as atrial fibrillation. But main uh, uses for uh, clinical adding to the clinical risk assessment and changing the category of the patient based on presence or absence of calcification. So uh, we have this patient, um, you know, maybe f between 40 and 75 years old, and they do have some risk factors, um, you know, whether they smoke, they have a high cholesterol um, and their blood pressure is elevated. And we want to get a calcium score and we get different categories. Can you explain to us a little bit uh, these different categories and, and what does it mean in terms of, what does it tell us in terms of prognosis over the next 10 years? Right. So if the calcium score is zero, that usually means that there is no identifiable atherosclerotic calcified plaque in the coronary artery. And that has been shown to have a very low cardiovascular disease risk in the next 10 years. Uh, the score between 1 to 10 is referred to as a minimal plaque and is associated with low cardiovascular risk scoring. Uh, between 11 to 100, it is a mild plaque with moderate cardiovascular disease risk and score between 101 to 400 is a moderate plaque burden and it is associated with higher cardiovascular disease risk. And any score beyond 400 usually means the patient has extensive atherosclerotic plaque and has a very high uh, cardiovascular disease risk in the next uh, 10 years or so. So um, th there was a recent article uh, just in, in March, actually in circulation, on calcium score greater than 1,000. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, um, greater than 1,000, uh, you know, I, I, in, in my uh, practice, usually people who have a very high coronary artery calcium score, uh, they are usually not a good candidate for evaluation with coronary CTA uh, because of the uh, artifacts which are derived from the coronary artery calcification. However, having said that, we have seen several patients, actually there were two patients last week who had a score of uh, 1,600 and one had a 2,400. Uh, and we did a coronary CT calcification because the patient had indeterminate stress tests and we went ahead and did it. And, and in these cases, it's very, very important that you try to minimize any other uh, artifact which can be generated, especially cardiac motion artifacts. So you really want to decrease their heart rate. Uh, you want to give them uh, nitroglycerin so you can dilate the coronary artery properly so you can see the lumen well. And breathing instructions, I think this is one thing which people don't realize. If you breathe during this scan, uh, not, nothing can be done. That study is ruined. Uh, it's just like a garbage in and garbage out. So if your study is not good, you cannot give any good data out of it. So... Uh, in these two cases, which we did, we were able to see the coronary artery. The, the cases where the coronary artery calcifications were very dense, even those areas, we could see the lumen and approve, and there was approximately 40% luminal narrowing. Mm -hmm. uh, but we could see rest of all 17 segments of the coronary artery quite well. So both of these patients turn out don't have obstructive coronary artery disease based on CCTA, despite very high calcification. So it, it is only our own experience. 
of course, you know, if the patient is very big, you know, 350 pound and heart rate is high, and then there is no point in doing this score, you know, this will be useless study. Very good. And so I think in the uh, John Hopkins experience, it seems like the, the when patients had terrible, uh, very high calcium score, it seems to be, uh, you know, correlating with the presence of subclinical disease. It means, you know, here we, we already have some buildup of plaque and, and it seemed to have some kind of impact on their long-term survival, not only from the point of view of the cardiovascular standpoint, but, but even uh, from the point of view of having more cancer, uh, you know, more dementia, seems to really uh, being affecting uh, the patients, you know, a lot more. But uh, I think the, uh, the, the, the jury obviously is still out, and it seems like it's good that that uh, you were able to perform a coronary angiogram using the CT, even with that amount of calcium. I guess calcium being that high, it's not only in the coronary arteries, but it's also on the valve, isn't it? And, and on the, in the aorta to get that high score. Uh, yes, yes. Patients do have uh, atherosclerotic disease in the aorta and its branches. Yes, true. Well, if we have a calcium of zero, usually it's pretty, it's related, you know, to a very good prognosis. Uh, and with the MESA study they were quoting, uh, you know, cardiac coronary event of less than, than a percent, you know, in the over a period of 10 years. But what is the warranty of calcium score of zero? Um, you know, is this actually something that we should feel good and not never measure again? Or is there a point of measuring later on in the future? Right. So uh, many studies have shown if the coronary artery calcification is zero, the overall at least short to intermediate uh, long-term prognosis is good in terms of having cardiovascular events. Uh, however, uh, the coronary artery calcification can progress over time, especially if the patient has any underlying risk factors, especially uncontrolled high blood pressure, hyperlipidemia, or diabetes. So these patients especially needs to have a repeat coronary calcification. Now the jury is out, what is the time period for doing repeat calcification? It is nothing like mammogram yearly or lung cancer screening yearly. It needs to be done maybe five to 10 years. Some people say 10 years is at least required, but there are studies which have shown in five years, if you have a double zero at baseline in five years, that is a stronger predictor that you will not have event in the near future. So um, certain group of people do need to have a repeat calcification. And this is what was used in the cardia study, which is going on for the last 30 years. And they have done a 10, 10 year interval uh, scans of these patients. Very interesting. So we have some patients, of course, that we want to prevent coronary disease. They have high cholesterol and we start them on the statin. And what we're trying to find, um, you know, a statin that doesn't, uh, that they seem to be tolerating very well. We have some patients that are very sensitive. Uh, they have muscle pain or arthralgias. And we try, we go through a different rounds of, of different statin. And they're still having problem tolerating it. Um, how about doing a calcium score? I mean, is it still valid? I mean, it seems like, you know, statin do change a little bit the way uh, the plaque modulates in the coronary arteries. Um, what is the experience of doing calcium score in patients that have taken statin? Right, so uh, statin, uh, the trial where the cholesterol management guideline initially used coronary artery calcification score in guiding the decision to initiate statins in intermediate risk category. Uh, but at that time, they also said that there is no clinical utility of coronary artery calcification in statin user. Uh, this was based on one study by Lee, uh, which showed that although the percent atheroma volume progressed slower in statin user, the progression of calcified percent atheroma volume increased more rapidly. Uh, reinforcing the data that statin may actually increase the coronary artery calcification progression. Now, having said that, uh, we, we know that statin do stabilize a vulnerable plaque, uh, making them more fibrous and ultimately more calcified. Uh, and 
over time, because of that increasing calcification, the agastin calcium score will increase. So this is a paradoxical effect because you are saying, you know, if coronary artery calcification is one today and after, you know, four years, it become 10 or 50, uh, it's worsening. But actually this is expected because of the statin effect on the plaque. Now, there was a recent uh, study which was published recently this year uh, from a very large uh, coronary artery calcification consortium. Uh, and they used that data retrospectively uh, and it was information based on baseline statin use with a mean follow of 11 years. And in this study, they looked at different components of coronary artery calcification, the volume, the area, and density differently, not just one single score. So what they found is that in statin users, both agastin score overall and coronary artery calcification volume still had prognostic utility for coronary heart disease and cardiovascular disease risk. Uh, uh, but also they, they also found that because of this increased calcification, there was a paradoxical uh, shift uh, or it was not uh, completely agreeable that you can say uh, that the prognostic significance of coronary artery calcification uh, is 100% useful in statin user based on just density, because we know the density will increase. So I think it, it, it is interesting. This is an interesting area which needs to be explored further. It really seems like the, uh, the calcium tends to form in the proximal portion of the coronary arteries and, and the, the statin may be in preventing uh, further development or, or you know, worsening of atherosclerosis, maybe preventing plaque and calcium buildup in the mid to distal portion, which is kind of the natural progression that, that we see normally. So it, it looks like there's still some useful information getting uh, a calcium score in a patient that are statin intolerant um, when they have a very high score indicating that the, the, there is, it could be some benefit to really pursuing um, cholesterol treatment you know, in these patients, maybe even not a statin, but other forms of therapy like, you know, the PCSK9 inhibitors or maybe uh, azitamide. How about calcium score in, in the young? I mean, obviously the MESA study uh, concentrated its, its effort on the 40 to 75 years old. Uh, what, kind of, what experience do we have in, in the patients that are in their 20s and 30s? Is there uh, is there some value in doing calcium score, I guess, in patients that we're concerned where they have a lot of risk factors? Right. Actually, uh, there are a few studies which have shown that uh, uh, the coronary artery calcification can be useful in younger patients, younger than 45 years. Uh, and this is a recent study which was published by Jeff Carr at Vanderbilt. Uh, it was in the JAMA from the CARDIA study. Uh, uh, so... The CARDIA study is a prospective community-based study recruited almost 5,000 participants. And is, it, these patients are under surveillance for 30 years and their coronary artery calcification is being measured. I think at, it was measured at 15, 20, and 25 years after recruitment. So what they found is at 15 year, 10% uh, or so patients had coronary artery calcification. And those patients with any calcification had five-fold increase in the coronary heart disease event. Uh, and also, if the coronary artery calcification is more than 100, uh, they had as association with early deaths, almost 22% increased early deaths. Uh, so what they concluded that, you know, in patients, uh, especially between 32 to 46 years, uh, there is increased risk of fatal as well as non-fatal coronary artery disease on follow-up, as well as in adult younger than 50 with any calcification, even with a low score like 1 to 0, or 1 or 1 to 10 or up to uh, 100, uh, there is elevated risk of clinical uh, coronary heart disease and cardiovascular disease as well as death. So uh, they speculated that selective screening for coronary artery calcification might be useful in selective individuals who have risk factors 
especially with early adulthood, with the family history or some other risk factors, uh, they can be really uh, benefit from uh, coronary artery calcification scoring. So that's very interesting. And, and I guess we're going to see a lot more, uh, you know, research in that area. Uh, because if we want to prevent coronary disease and coronary event, we have to start in the young age. And certainly, um, you know, in that patient group of 20 and the 30s, uh, it seems to me that this is where it's time maybe to take some action, you know, particularly in patients that are at high risk and maybe the ones showing already evidence of calcium. So let's say, for example, we, so these are patients that are asymptomatic. We want to prevent coronary disease, but we see sometimes patients that, um, you know, that have atypical symptoms. I mean, the, the pain is really kind of a not classic. Uh, they do have some risk factors. Uh, what kind of experience do we have uh, getting a cardiac CT, particularly a calcium score? Uh, how does it compare, for example, to um, stress imaging that, that we do um, in the office? Or, or do we have any data actually on the calcium score in relation to patients uh, undergoing angiogram in that uh, group of patients that have atypical chest pain? Right. So th currently there are no guidelines which endorse use of corneotic calcification in symptomatic patients including those who are at low risk for coronary artery disease. But having said that, there are there is some data out there, which is, I think, slowly growing, and probably it will further change these guidelines in future. Uh, as we know, the, any choosing the image modality uh, in a patient with chest pain, it all depends on the pretest probability. Uh, if the chest pain occurred in a patient with very high pretest probability, you don't want to do any other imaging but to take him to the cath lab and do some intervention if required. But in those patients where pretest probability is not very high and they have atypical chest pain and their troponin is not elevated and EKG is nonspecific, not typical for ischemia, in those cases, currently, I think the first test which we do at UAB as for especially patients who are presented to ED is often coronary CTA with contrast. Uh, but presence of coronary artery calcification instead of CCTA is an um, interesting uh, thought. I mean, you can, because we know if the calcium score is zero, the outcome is usually good. At least you can have that. And then, you know, you can follow these patients and down the road, you can do some imaging. Uh, having said that, it becomes somewhat, I think, situation become uncomfortable, especially in the ED setting. If the patient is having chest pain and you just do a calcium score and tell them you don't have a calcium score, you go ahead, you know, go home because there are some group of patients where you may not have calcification, but they still may have a non-calcified plaque, which might be causing uh, the coronary artery obstruction and symptomatic. So you might miss those patients if you just look at the calcification. So for that reason alone, I think, and, and of course, you know, that's a big medical legal issue also. And that is the reason we do lot of testing and unfortunately a lot more what we need to do uh, but there is some role I think it may not be in the ED setting but it may be in the uh, clinic setting where the patients are kind of stable uh, they are symptomatic which we do not know and those patients can be uh, uh, scanned with calcium score and down the road you know maybe scanned with something else uh, I don't think there is any large randomized data uh, on a study on this topic. Uh, there is some uh, kind of uh, discrepancy between calcium score and myocardial perfusion imaging as well. Uh, there are a few studies which have shown patients who have a zero calcium, uh, they often have positive myocardial perfusion study. This is not a very large number, but their outcome is, uh, is, is, is based on zero score is not significant. Uh, so despite, I think, uh, 
the ischemia being positive, uh, calcium score, I think, does have a role. But I think we need more studies uh, to compare between uh, the calcium versus uh, myocardial ischemia. Uh, there was a, one study also which showed that in patients who have a zero coronary artery calcification, uh, there was approximately 12% or so uh, who had abnormal stress myocardial perfusion study with the majority showing a small perfusion defect, which is usually less than 10% of the LV myocardium, and only 4% showing a large defect, more than 20% of the LV myocardium. But irrespective of this normal or abnormal, their annualized event rate was still low because their calcium score was zero. So I think this uh, needs to be further evaluated because there is some discrepancy between two distant, uh, these imaging tests. Yeah, I agree. And there's also the situation where, you know, in these patients where you do a, a, a myocardial perfusion imaging because of atypical chest pain, uh, low-risk patient, uh, you have a normal stress test, which usually is associated with very, very, um, with good prognosis and very uh, small cardiac event over the next two to three years, let's say. But, uh, you know, obviously a lot of these patients can still have a lot of calcium buildup and have an elevated calcium score as compared to if you have, you know, a, 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 um, a normal calcium score of zero, uh, that does actually bring you a very, very good prognosis over maybe a, a more prolonged period of of time, maybe five, as you said previously, five to 10 years. Uh, it seems like among the patients that have an, a normal stress test, you can have some patients with elevated calcium score, which may be uh, you know, pointing toward more cardiac event and therefore maybe not as long of a warranty possibly. Anyway, uh, some kind of interesting um, uh, studies that probably will sprout <laughs> over the next several years. What about calciums, uh, the calcium that is evaluated? Uh, you know, let's say we have a chest a patient coming in the emergency room uh, for atypical chest pain, and we want to rule out aortic dissection, and we want to rule out a PTE. Uh, we'll do a CT that is non-cardiac gated. Uh, and then we see some calcium. Actually, is there some, uh, are you doing this at UAB where you're reporting um, you, the amount of calcium, um, uh, you know, in those, those patients. And um, because it seems like it has some good relationship with the actual calcium score and maybe even the prognosis in these patients. Uh, yes, actually, we do report it. And specifically for the lung cancer screening studies, mm -hmm. we report it. There's a visual coronary artery calcification score on non-gated routine chest CT or lower dose lung cancer screening CTs, uh, which we have validated uh, with the Augustine score. This is also known as Weston score, visual assessment. And based on it, you know, we, we give them different uh, uh, numbers. Zero is no visual detected calcium. One is only one single high density pixel without any blooming artifact. Three is very high calcification with blooming artifact and two is in between these two. It's somewhat subjective, but you know, we did a study and the, the variability was not significant. So, because this, there's a range. So we can uh, predict that if the, this number turn out to be visual score is more than seven, it is a significant calcification, uh, which correspond to more than 400. Uh, so yes. Now, having said that, uh, the problem is we, we report on all lung cancer screening CTs, but I'm not sure whether anybody uh, act upon that. I mean, you know, uh, I, I think this, there are a few studies out there. We have not looked at our data. Uh, there's a data from UCSF where, where they say, you know, yeah, I mean, we report it and they act upon it if needed. Uh, but I'm not sure it, if it is true in our population here. Now, for the other uh, ED scans for PE or aortic uh, dissection, if we see calcification, we do report it. We do not um, give the Western score because those scans are often done after hours and those 
folks, you know, the audience who are reading it, they are not dedicated chess and they do not know this visual scoring. But we encourage them to at least, you know, report it that presence or absence of calcification, especially if you see in a younger patient, which is much more important. Very good. So that's our first segment on the calcium score. I think it's a study that is uh, very quick. It's uh, usually gated uh, to, to the electrocardiogram. It takes about maybe 10 to 15 minutes. It provides a lot of information and really helps us uh, reclassify uh, the, the risk of a patient that, has, that is asymptomatic and has not had any evidence of coronary artery disease. It helps us evaluate the plaque burden and helps us also evaluate how aggressive we need to be with the treatment of their cholesterol, as well as treatment of their blood pressure, whether they, they would benefit from aspirin. Um, it's also helpful in patients that have taken statin, try to evaluate these patients. And uh, we've discussed that, you know, the different spectrum of calcium and zero, giving us a very good prognosis over a period of five to 10 years, it probably needs to be re-evaluated. Re and um, calcium score that were greater than 400 and the calcium score that were greater than 1,000, indicating the presence of subclinical disease, where we need to be very aggressive treating these patients almost as if they have you know, coronary artery disease and giving them uh, the medication that we give for secondary prevention. So let's, let's talk now about the, the second portion, and that is the CT angiography. We know that a CT angiography has undergone significant development and uh, with multiple clinical studies demonstrating its accuracy and its potential to guide clinical decision-making and improve prognosis also compared to the standard stress imaging protocols. So tell us a little bit about um, you know, CT and geography. These, obviously, this is done primarily in patients that have symptoms of chest pain, but that usually low to intermediate risk, as we've mentioned previously. Well, let's talk about the te technological requirement. Let's talk about, you know, can we do that on any, any CT? Uh, you know, what is required to get a good CT angiogram, Dr. Singh? Okay, so um, first of all, uh, in these cases, a patient preparation is crucial. Once we decide that we are gonna do coronary CTA, uh, we need to figure out first whether these patients have any kind of contrast allergy or they have any renal uh, insufficiency because we do need to give intravenous contrast. Uh, and also we need to note that if they have any kind of pacemaker, for which we may need to modify the protocol or use slightly different filters. And also, uh, it's important to know if the patient has prior bypass surgery, because if you are, uh, if they have it, and we do want to evaluate those bypass scan, we might to extend uh, the field of view of the scan above the clavicle all the way to the diaphragm, rather than just concentrating on the heart. Uh, that's number one. So once we decide that, okay, patient is ready to come, uh, these patients preferably should take beta blockers. Uh, we advise at least two to three days before. It's not just to decrease the heart rate, but also what we found, even with patients who have a lower baseline heart rate, if you give beta blocker, the variability which can occur during image acquisition is lower. So that is quite important. That's important for getting a good scan. And once the patient is here, we explain to what to expect it. And uh, they are also advised not to have a solid food for four hours, no coffee or stimulant. And if they're using any kind of uh, erectile dysfunction medication, they need to stop that for 24 hours and do not take after 48 hours. Uh, and we tell them to come at least 30 to 60 minutes before because patients are usually anxious. That will increase their heart rate. Once they come down and settle down, you talk to them, they become you know, more rested and heart rate goes down. Uh, then we nurse will start an IV uh, access. The IV usually is in the anticubital fossa. Uh, we definitely need at least 20 gauge because the contrast rate of injection is anywhere between four to five cc because we need a good solid bolus. So you need at least 20 gauge or uh, 18 gauge access. And we test that with test flush with saline in case you know it is about to blow out. 
And once the patient is on the table, we put electrodes for EKG and connect it to the machine. Uh, and we check the heart rate and uh, check with variation with any breathing. We tell them take a breath in and blow out and see if there's any variation in the heart rate. And if there is, then we might give them additional intravenous beta blocker in five milligram increment up to 15 milligram metoprolol. Uh, slowly, in, slowly injected, check their blood pressure and uh, watch uh, for the irregularity of the heart rate. And then also definitely practice breath hold. It's very, very important. I think this is the thing which many people uh, forget that is very critical in these coronary CT angiograms. So once uh, the patients are ready, we uh, inject the contrast, usually between four to five cc's. Uh, technique of scanning is different based on the indications. Now, before I go in, uh, any scanner which is 64 detector or more can do coronary CTA. I mean, when we started doing coronary CTA, we did it on four detector and 16 detector. But to get a good quality scan, it has to be at least 64. Uh, most of the majority of the uh, machines which are now available in the market often have you know, 126 or 320 or more than 320 detectors. And we also have a dual source scanner uh, as well, uh, where there are two uh, X-ray tubes which can go very faster. And these are the machines where we can do what is called a high pitch scanning, where the table can move very fast and you can scan the study in very short interval. Um, there are different CT protocols. So uh, we have to choose what is best for a patient. If the patient's heart rate is good and stable, and we are looking only at the coronary arteries, we can use a prospective EKG triggering. That means the machine is only on for a short period of RR interval, the EKG interval. And it is called a step and shoot mode because machine is on for one time, then the table moves, and then again, machine is on. So it is a step and shoot kind of mode. The biggest advantage of this is the radiation exposure is very minimal because extra exposure is only limited for a very small period of time. Uh, the disadvantage is if patient take a breath or if there is arrhythmia, uh, the study can be ruined because you do not have multiple phases. You have only one phase which is available. Uh, the other thing is you do not have any functional data with these kind of scans. So if you are looking for functional data, which sometimes we do, especially for patients who are being evaluated for congenital heart disease, uh, we do a retrospective gating where the uh, X-ray is on throughout the RR phase. In um, those cases, the radiation is slightly higher, uh, but you get all the functional data. And by chance, if one phase is degraded from whatever reason, you have other phases to work on. So that is the biggest advantage of uh, retrospective or prospective gating. Uh, we have used high pitch protocol. We use high pitch protocol very frequently for uh, aortic dissections if they are in the outpatient setting for PEs because it reduces the radiation exposure up to 40%. I mean, that's a phenomenon. And the studies are very good. In fact, many of these studies, because the scan is so quick, it almost produces images like patients have taken beta blockers. So you can even see coronary arteries quite well. The, uh, what is the, the radiation that is, uh, I mean, the radiation has decreased significantly over the years, radiation exposure. If you could compare that, for example, to other techniques uh, that we use in cardiology, like myocardial perfusion imaging or or even a chest X-ray, right. or even a cardiac catheterization. What are we talking about? Okay, so for coronary artery calcification score, it is uh, less than one millisiever, usually around 0.4 millisiever or so, or even less. It, it all depends on the patient body habitus too. If the patient is very large, it, it may be slightly more, but not, not a whole lot for calcium score. For coronary CTA, again, it depends on patient body habitus and what kind of study you are doing. Uh, and if you end up doing retrospective, now 
I would say between one to five millisievert total retrospective cardiac CTA. We have seen, uh, we have done studies with retrospective gating in a small patient, 160 pound with only two millisievert. I mean, beautiful study, entire mm -hmm. cardiac function. The catheter angiography, again, depends, you know, how many views you take, how much contrast, how much fluoro, how heavy is your foot. Uh, ideally, I think it is between three to seven millisieverts. Um, many conscious people are, you know, even less, you know, they, they know, uh, they take very few images. Um, a chest X-ray is almost like 0.02 to 0.04 millisievert if you're taking one view or two views. A regular chest CT without contrast or CTA is anywhere between five to seven millisieverts. Uh, maybe stress is again variable. They used to be very high dose. I think they have decreased now too. Uh, they are anywhere between five to, uh, I would say, uh, close to 20 or so millisievert if you do both rest and stress. Uh, and also interestingly, any transatlantic flight, you get exposed, you know, there is a three millisievert exposure. Amazing. And yearly background is also between three to four. I mean, uh, Philip just went to Montana. I think he got exposed to four millisievert probably. I should have chosen his face. You know? Yeah. <laughs> it was radiation. <laughs> Well, particularly the, the system, maybe the, the myocardial perfusion imaging, when you use the thallium, the dual isotope, yeah. uh, really the radiation really gets, you know, in the 20 to 23 millisievert. Uh, therefore, the advantage of using, you know, other protocols, you know, more primarily with technicium, where you can reduce patient exposure to radiation. But, you know, it's amazing to me that the, the CT and geography, uh, with the new, you know, development and fast technique, thin slice, multi-detectors, multiple sources. I mean, you get radiation exposure that are really minimal. It's really fantastic. Correct. Yeah, what about for uh, the patient, you know, standpoint, I mean, I, I guess the size matters. You, you did mention, you know, obviously that um, if you have patients with larger BMI, uh, if you have is it still a problem? You get really uh, not very good imaging as well as more exposure if you have BMIs of 35 to 40 and you still do them sometimes or? Well, we, we have done that because those are uh, the problem patient for everyone, right? I mean, you, you really, you know, physical examination is limited. You cannot do echo very good. Um, you know, you catheterization is kind of difficult too. Uh, so CT uh, turned out to be, you know, a good modality, actually. You know, we have done uh, quite a few, uh, even reaching up to 500 pounds. There was wow. one patient which was, we did for 500 pounds. Of course, the radiation dose is phenomenal. You have to increase the exposure, but there was no other way to look at inside the patient. And uh, so in these cases, what we try to do is, you know, try to decrease other artifacts, control the other things which can produce artifacts, heart rate, uh, breathing artifacts, you know, uh, sometimes giving them oxygen on the table helps them, you know, if their patient is anxious, that helps them. Um, we have to give them more contrast because their blood volume is so much, you know, usual 40 to 60 ml is not enough. They might need even 100 cc, but much, much higher rate, more than five cc per second. Uh, so I think there are, uh, I would say there are situations where you still don't get good study. You know, it all depends on the machines too. Some machines cannot generate enough photons, juice, but the dual source, if you have a two different x-rays, you know, they have two generators, so they can really pump up. So we have to be very careful. We have a, a limit applied how much they can go up. Otherwise, they are they can go blast them, you know, with the 80 millisieverts in one, one scan. Wow. Uh, yeah, so it is always difficult if you have a good machine and if the patient can tolerate high rate of contrast injection, breath hold, we can get a decent study. I won't say it's the best study, but decent study. So regular heart rate, uh, BMI, <laughs> preferentially less than 40. Uh, normal renal function, you have to hold your breath. Uh, tolerate beta blockers. Um, you lift both arms above their head? Um, uh, or 
Yes, usually both arms above the head because if the arms are beside, they produce a lot of artifacts. Right. But if the patient cannot bring arm above, we try to uh, put a pillow on the chest and tell them to kind of hug the pillow. So mm-hmm. it can go uh, get away from the field of view of the carana and below. Do you use also nitroglycerin? Is that why yes. you're concerned with Yes, we, we prefer if we can give nitroglycerin, if the patient has a good blood pressure and uh, there there's no other contraindication. Of course, patient, you know, with aortic stenosis, we, we do not give them. Right. So um, the um, obviously the CT angiogram uh, has performed very well. Could you tell us a little bit about maybe some of the comparison how does it compare to a coronary arteriogram? Uh, and how does it compare also to uh, functional stress imaging in terms of sensitivity and specificity? Right. So uh, when we look at the sensitivity and specificity uh, between different modalities, uh, so there, there is uh, data comparing exercise, treadmill, exercise echo, dabutamine echo, nuclear treadmill, uh, adenosine treadmill, and coronary CTA. Coronary CTA sensitivity, specificity is the highest. Uh, it is upper 90s and close to upper 80s and 90, uh, respectively, sensitivity and specificity. Mm-hmm. Um, nuclear scan uh, it, it is uh, close to 90, the sensitivity, the specificity is in the 70s range. Um, Echo is slightly, uh, it's in the same range, actually. Echo also, debutamine, as well as uh, exercise echo, treadmill stress. So CT has a pretty high sensitivity and specificity. Uh, but provided, you know, you, you really need to get a good imaging uh, with all the factors we just discussed. So, you know, if you have a good study, it will be very easy to interpret and diagnose any kind of disease. So that means that uh, for CT and geography, we have a very high sensitivity in the order of 97% with very good negative predictive value. That means if a coronary CT angiogram is normal, there's very high likelihood that that uh, that patient is going to do well. Um, But it may be a bit more difficult when you do have coronary lesion or coronary calcification. How does it compare to uh, the, the angiogram uh, in that respect? I mean, is that a pretty fair comparison? Um, or? Now, when there is calcification, I think calcification is still our enemy. I mean, we have not solved that issue, even despite all this uh, technological advancement. I mean, if there is dense calcification, CT tend to overestimate stenosis. We have seen that, uh, you know, we call it and Take patient taken to cath lab, there is not significant stenosis. It's mainly because of the blooming artifacts. I mean, calcium give rise to blooming artifact and you cannot really see the lumen. Uh, now, having said that, with the newer scans, I think the, 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 the quality uh, has improved. The blooming artifacts have decreased. Uh, and if you are doing a dual Uh, energy scan, there is a study which has done a dual energy scan, which range from 50 kV to 140 kV. In the 140 kV range, the blooming artifact, the calcium goes down very significantly. So, but those are only uh, anecdotal studies, uh, but calcium remains uh, our enemy. I think uh, you have to be very cautious when you are reading patients' uh, CTAs with very heavy calcification. We always put a disclaimer that, you know, this may not be accurate what we are telling. I tend to um, lower my uh, uh, numbers. You know, if I'm suspecting 50%, I'll say usually around 30 to 40%. It's not significant because this is what I have seen in my experience. We tend to overestimate. There is something that is very, um, very characteristic of the uh, CT because you're taking a tomographic image uh, in the body. Uh, not only you see a reconstructed angiogram, but you're able to see actually the plaque morphology, probably even better so than the coronary angiogram per se. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about this? I mean, does plaque morphology matters? Absolutely. So uh, if you compare coronary CTA and invasive catheter angiography, 
both show the lumen, but what the, the best part of the CTA is it shows the wall of the coronary artery where the plaque is. So you can determine if the patient has a plaque and what kind of plaque it is, what is the extent of the plaque, how many vessels are involved. Uh, and also you can characterize the plaque. There are certain features which can tell us that the plaque is more vulnerable as compared to uh, non-vulnerable plaque. And those are number one, uh, the positive remodeling when the vessel in the initial stages where the plaque is usually not calcified, but it is building outward. In these cases, the lumen is not narrowed. So CT and geography will show the plaque, but catheter will not. Catheter and geography will be total normal. Um, number one is the uh, positive remodeling and the low density of the plaque because vulnerable plaques are those which are lipid rich. Uh, now, jury is still out on that. You can see the low density, but it is very, very heterogeneous. As we know, this plaque building is, is a systemic chronic process. So it is not one step. So most of the plaques are heterogeneous. So it depends where you put your cursor to determine the density. Uh, so, so what we decide now is whether it is a calcified plaque or a non-calcified plaque. Everything from fibrous to lipid is lumped together in non-calcified. So positive remodeling, low density, spotty calcifications, if you see them, those are features this is similar to IWAS, what we see. Uh, and of course, if the plaque volume is large, that is also a high risk feature, uh, which we can very clearly see. Uh, the one other sign which have been described is called a napkin ring sign, where you have a low attenuation of the plaque in the center and a slightly high density around it, which people say this is due to a fibrous thin cap of the atheroma, or some people say it is the vascularization from the vasovisorum, we do not know, but studies have shown if you see that feature on CTA, it is a considered a high-risk plaque feature. So the plaque morphology does matter, this low attenuation, positive remodeling, spotty calcification, and napkin ring, you seem to correlate with worst outcome and more obstructive coronary disease more events. So I think this is really quite important. Uh, so, you know, we have a lot of patients. These are patients that uh, have gone uh, a lot of times, some previous intervention. Uh, maybe they've had a stent. Uh, maybe they've had, you know, some coronary bypass. How do you, um, can you still see the uh, the coronary, the, the lumen or the inside of the coronary artery if you have a stent uh, or the only like a certain size or Right, so uh, stents, if they are large enough, a three millimeter or larger, we can see them uh, quite well. Uh, but again, depend upon the machine, what you have. Uh, if you have the dual source machine, which can really give you better spatial resolution, you can see within the stent itself. So in the, the size one factor, what type of stent it is, some stent produce more artifacts than others. Uh, then we have certain uh, technical features which can apply different sharp filters are there for stent evaluation when we're doing imaging. Uh, and we can give slightly higher MA to increase the radiation exposures to see the stent better. Uh, also, we give higher rate of injection to see the stent better. So these are the factors which can which we can use to optimize a coronary CTA in patients with stent. Uh, yes, we have seen many patients uh, with stents where we could see instant stenosis, uh, but these are usually larger stent proximal vessels, you know, not smaller distal stents, which we really still cannot see it. Uh, there is other sign which is called a, you know, transient attenuation gradient. You can look at the contrast density beyond this uh, stent. If the stent, the density of the contrast is still same or slightly decreased, it usually indicates the stent is patent, although you may not be able to see within the stent. But the caveat is, you know, there can be a collateral circulation which can fill distally. So uh, 
stents, I think we can evaluate uh, in comparison to calcium, which is still not evaluable. Now, bypass grafts are easy to evaluate because they are away from the heart. The cardiac motion does not affect usually that much. So these patients may not even need beta blocker, uh, but we do need to cover uh, more field of view. Most of the patients who have bypass graft, they usually have a lima and a saphenous vein graft. So for lima, you need to cover their origin from the subclavian artery and all the way down. Uh, but we do want to make sure uh, the artifacts are less, you know, the bleeding artifacts. And if you give beta blocker, they're useful. You know, they will decrease the blooming artifact from the clips uh, where they tie off intercostal arteries. Uh, we have seen cephalous venous graft very clearly. They are larger graft. They are easy to see. And we have seen good stenosis of these because of the plaque buildup. So um, I'm kind of interested to see, uh, it seems like, you know, in the United States, we, we still go according to, you know, kind of the guidelines. You have a patient coming with chest pain is still recommended to do the, the functional stress test, uh, you know, imaging. And if that is abnormal, then you can pursue with a CT angiogram. But it, in Europe, they, they, they go, particularly in England, they go with totally different philosophy. And the CT is really, uh, you know, becoming... Uh, when the patient presents to the emergency room, I mean, that's almost the first thing that is uh, being um, ordered and performed. It looks like you're doing that also at UAB, Dr. Singh. Is that right? And not, not 100%. Uh, yeah. You know, it, it all depends who is on call in cardiology. Right. Uh, the younger people, they, they believe in CT, so we get more... Uh, CTAs from them, but the older generation, unfortunately, they still believe mm -hmm. what they have been taught, you know, what, what they grow up. Uh, but yes, as you said correctly, uh, the NICE, um, the, the England uh, uh, protocol now is a CCTA first in patients with the suspected coronary artery disease. It actually started with coronary artery calcification in 2010, but in 2016, it turned over to CCTA as the first modality. Uh, I think here also, it's probably going to change. The ischemia trial also showed that, you know, the CTA has the same value as stress. So, um, and CTA can show you much more information, you know, uh, not just coronary arteries. It can give you other information of other causes of chest pain. Patient may have a pneumonia, may have a PE or aortic dissection or severe esophagitis. We have seen all variety of cases which can mimic uh, ACS. Yeah, certainly, in the, also in the Scott Heart, you know, in uh, in England, uh, well, not in England, in Scotland, you know, they, they really saw the value of performing a CTA, really changing even uh, the outcome of the patient, allowing maybe even better uh, medical treatment yes. in the patients where they were found to have, you know, coronary artery disease. So hopefully, this probably the way... Um, you know, the field is evolving, you know, with the advance uh, and advent of the coronary CTA uh, <clears throat> at different centers, you know, particularly with higher resolution, um, you know, CT scans and better quality images um, and providing incredibly, uh, incredible information that it can be uh, useful clinically, you know, from the patient standpoint, it's a big advantage. Now, you know, of course, we could look at a coronary artery and we could kind of uh, see a narrowing or a stenosis. But how do we know, you know, whether it's clinically significant? You know, we deal with that in the in the cath lab all the time where it's difficult sometimes. You take different views. Uh, you know, you have a, 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 a coronary stenosis that can be moderate, moderate to severe. So we've used, you know, the wires and uh, derive either an IFR or FFR or fractional flow reserve. I understand also this is a technology that is really progressing uh, and evolving in the CT field. Are you doing that at UAB, Dr. Singh, the FFR, CT FFR? Uh, no, we are not doing currently uh, because of several reasons, uh, mainly economic, you know, Currently, the third-party payers don't pay for it, and it is expensive. It's almost about eleven hundred dollars. How is it, how is it done? I mean, is it just the software? Right. So uh, currently, uh, most of the places there's only one vendor, Heartflow, which uh, is doing the CTFFR. So the CTFFR is 
basically a computer based based on computational flow dynamics uh, algorithm uh, which is applied to coronary CTA images. Uh, and this CFD is commonly used in aerospace and automotive industries. And it is based on the pressure and velocities, uh, physical laws of mass conservation, etc. cetera. Uh, so uh, there is no special requirement for this. Uh, you just do a standard CTA, uh, same protocol what we do. There is no additional imaging, no extra radiation exposure. You do not give any adenosine as compared to uh, invasive FFR. Uh, once the study is done, you send the study to heart flow people. And of course, they have their algorithm, use the super computational model based on CCTA, blood flow solution, and they will send you back the data, nice colorful images. Uh, the turnaround time now is around four hour or less. It used to be 24 hour, but even four hour is kind of high, you know, uh, if you're looking at acute uh, coronary uh, event. Uh, the, uh, th there is a second model, which is desktop model, which is uh, provided by several vendors. Um, who make CT scanners, but they are not FDA approved. So you cannot uh, use them. It's kind of a research source, uh, but there are some people who are using it. It's basically machine learning, you know, just like AI, you know, it's expanding everywhere. It is already doing machine learning and the data which comes out, people have compared with uh, machine learning and CFD based, and this is very, very comparable. So. I think that is the way to go. It is quicker. Uh, it is cheaper. Um, you know, I mean, and, and that information is there. And this information is very powerful information. As you said, I mean, you know, looking at the stenosis means nothing. Uh, we know majority of the coronary events occur now in non-stenotic segments. So uh, you, you have to know. I mean, studies from invasive FFR have shown that, you know, outcome from FFR-based strategies is much better than just uh, catheter-based studies. S same thing applies to CTA as well. Patients who have done CTA and done second group CTA plus CTFFR, the CTFFR is way, way much better. Uh, there are many studies which were done to uh, uh, during the evaluation of the uh, uh, CTFFR uh, and the last study was the NXT study, which based on which you know the FDA gave them clearance. It showed the sensitivity specificity in the upper 80s, uh, very good. Uh, so I think uh, there are a few other trials also which have looked at the uh, utility of CTFFR, uh, particularly platform trial. Uh, it was uh, you know I think Pam Douglas at the Duke, you know she is the one which was uh, mainly involved in that. It was a prospective clinical trial and that there are two groups, usual care versus CT uh, FFR guided strategy. And they found that uh, obviously, you know, most of the FFR guided, they uh, change the obstructive uh, or categorization of patients. So many patients who were supposed to be obstructive with CTFR actually turn out not to have a significant uh, hemodynamics. So the uh, catheter angiography was significantly decreased by almost 80%. And also they looked at the one-year data and those patients who did not undergo catheterization based on CTFFR, there was no adverse events for one, one year. And there was some other data that, you know, the hospitalization or recurrent clinical visits were also uh, less as compared to the usual care. So uh, I think it is a very powerful uh, tool uh, but it needs to be made available more readily and cheaper. Uh, right. Well, you know, I feel like that's probably uh, the way we're going. You know, that's the way of the future where you have a, a non-invasive, you know, technique like a cardiac CTA, particularly combined with FFR, where you could really, um, you know, streamline, you know, the treatment of a particular patient and bringing someone to the cath lab where you have uh, increased certainty that may, may need you know, beneficial intervention. Um, uh, uh, otherwise, you know, we treat medically and you can really uh, prevent you know, uh, all this utilization of cardiac cath. Uh, since we have so many uh, that have you know, normal or non-significant disease in some labs, 
up to 40 or 50%, I can see the CT could have a significant impact in reducing, you know, that number and have, you know, be medically, um, you know, more sounded, uh, particularly from the cost basis. That's accurate, yeah. Well, Dr. Singh, really um, enjoyed discussing with you everything we wanted to know about the cardiac CT from the calcium score to the cardiac uh, CT angiography from, you know, prognosis to diagnosis and then to prognosis again. <laughs> so <laughs> thank you, Dr. Singh. Uh, and uh, uh, this was a very valuable information uh, for all of our patients. And uh, we'll be able to kind of post that uh, on myheart.net. Right. Thank you so much for the time. Thank you very much. I appreciate the invitation and uh, I really enjoyed talking to you. To learn more from our team of cardiologists, please visit us at myheart.net. You can also follow us on social media by searching myheart.net on Facebook and Twitter. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss our next episode. <laughs>